0: Oh, we get a countdown.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Spain to go the best podcast in the entire multiverse for all things, Spain, as usual, I am Daniel Welsh coming to you from beautiful Barcelona. And I'm here with Amy.
0: Hi, Daniel.
1: It's uh, good to meet you, Amy. You have a company called Walk and Eat Spain and we're going to talk about uh, Madrid, Spain, food culture and things like that. So welcome to the show, Amy.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. Good to be here.
1: Would you like to give a uh, brief introduction to yourself, a little backstory?
0: sounds good so i like daniel i'm also originally from arizona in the united states and uh spain has been home for me for uh, just over 10 years now um, and it's one of those incredible places, Madrid for me, is one of those incredible places where it kind of ruins you for living everywhere else. It's got some of the best wines in the world. It's got incredible food. It's an extremely accessible city. I can walk everywhere. And kind of once I started living in Madrid, it was kind of game over for me. I was like, yep, I think I'm gonna have to stay here for a very long time.
1: Yeah, now I can understand that. All sounds good. Um, this might be kind of the same topic but why do you love spain
0: why do i love spain to me spain is a country where every sort of piece of mental everything comes back to this idea that um you should share stories over food and drink Um, It's a very, very social country. It's a very beautiful country. The food is incredible. The wine is incredible. Obviously I've got this wine map behind me here. Um, I'm very, very big into wine. Um, And you know, Spain's an extremely accessible country um, that I think is very open and very welcoming um, and a very fun and delicious place to live. What made you come here or stay here?
1: I was just young and dumb and having an adventure, basically, and it worked out pretty well. But like you, after I had been here for a couple of months, I was just like, you know, pretty sure I didn't want to go back to my life in Arizona. So here we are 20 years later, well, 19 years later.
0: Isn't it crazy saying those numbers out loud? 10 years I've lived in Spain. It seems like an enormous number. I don't feel like I've been here that long.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm coming up on half of my life in Spain. So that's a a step, a milestone.
0: Absolutely. I hope you have a very nice bottle of wine saved for that moment.
1: Um, maybe, no, not yet, but we'll see. Um, so. What's it like being a native Arizonan living in Europe?
0: It is very different from Arizona. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I do really miss the burritos in in Tucson, which is where my family is. Um, and the hot sauce, nothing spicy over here in Spain, very few spicy things. Um, so it's very different, but you know, I think the pace of life over here is more my style. I love not having to drive, I love walking. Um, you know, I love a culture that You know, they always say, um, you know, really works to live instead of lives to work. I think there's typically a very nice balance um, between your work life, your social life and having hobbies and interests. Um, You know, I love that in Spain, the first thing people ask you when they meet you after your name, of course, is not where do you work but what do you like to do you know i talk a lot more about you know going to wine tastings or going cycling or, or doing yoga than i do necessarily about you know my my employment um, although i do have to say i'm probably the exception to that rule because i'm pretty obsessed with uh, walk and eat with my company and i think it's kind of the dream job so i do spend a lot of time talking about that too
1: great um so I get a lot of uh, people who have certain ideas about Arizona and people from Arizona that you know are not always exactly true. Um, do you have a favorite stereotype or something similar about Arizona that people always bring up to you or ask you about?
0: I don't know if this happens to you, I'm sure it does, but the second someone asks you where are you from, and you reply with Arizona, they do this, Arizona Baby, every single time. Does that happen to you?
1: Not every single time, no. Um, yeah. It has happened. The Arizona <laughs> Baby is what they call the Nick Cage movie, right?
0: It's that, but it's also a Spanish rock band from like the rock 90s. Band called
1: Arizona
0: there's
1: oh i there didn't is, know that
0: yeah i highly recommend going down that uh that spotify tunnel um there's there's a lot All of right. gems on arizona baby there
1: yeah i've tried to get into spanish music it's never yeah. gone well <laughs> um yeah arizona baby is what they call the movie raising arizona nicholas cage possibly the cohen brothers if i'm not wrong i have no idea i don't know it's a weird movie which Actually, the last bit of the movie takes place just a few miles down the road from where I grew up. There's a sort of dramatic motorcycle chase in the Old West themed, you know, touristy area out there. And I guess this is everything people know about Arizona. Um, my favorite Arizona stereotype is when people look at me and say, You don't look like someone from Arizona. <laughs> Like they have a specific uh, expectation of what a person from Arizona looks like. And I'm not living up to their expectation.
0: And has anyone described to you what you're supposed to look like as someone from Arizona?
1: I think they're probably picturing like John Wayne or something.
0: It's true. I don't know what kind of boots you wear, but you probably need some of those clinky clanky cowboy boots.
1: Clinky clanky. Yeah, I got the I got the Timberlands in here. It's not very John Wayne-ish. Well, so what specifically brought you to Madrid first, uh, uh, your first time? And maybe if your first time was just on a visit, what brought you your second time to Madrid?
0: The first time I ever came to Madrid, I was a study abroad student. I spent five, uh, five months studying in Southern Spain in Sevilla, um, and came up to Madrid on a weekend trip with some friends I was studying with. And I was like, meh, big city. Nothing very interesting. Didn't eat very much food. Probably also didn't leave the like three minute walk radius of Plaza Mayor and Sol when I was here. Um, And so fast forward three years, I had just finished a year of teaching in a tiny little village in Galicia in northern Spain and looked to go to a bigger city. Um, My village was Itsy Bitsy Tiny, Um, and so took a position teaching in Madrid, kind of not thinking I was going to particularly love the city, but my Spanish still wasn't very good, and I didn't want to leave Spain until I could speak Spanish better. Um, Came to Madrid and kind of found my niche in a neighborhood. I was living just north of Malasaña, which is the neighborhood we now run our tours and experiences in. And I think, Madrid, once you find your little piece of it, it really becomes home. Um, You know, it it is a big kind of overwhelming city when you first look at it, but in reality, it's just a collection of kind of individual neighborhoods that are all squished together into this crazy city we call Madrid. And so once I found that neighborhood that really resonated with me and I found my local market and my butcher started to get to know my name and that sort of thing, um, that's what really made me stay.
1: Yeah, having a good butcher is important. I have... I haven't quite settled on a butcher in Barcelona and I've been here for five years, which might be one of the reasons I'm not, you know, enchanted with Barcelona. But yeah, in Madrid, I had a butcher when I lived in Vallecas, my, I guess my longest, uh, my longest term neighborhood was in Puente de Vallecas. And then I was up in Tetuan Mm -hmm. for about four years or five years. And I had a, a butcher, in Tetuan who Mm -hmm. you know I actually occasionally when I'm in Madrid I actually go back and visit them is the kind of relationship you end up having with your butcher after a while.
0: Yeah exactly when I go into Mercado de kind of just north of Malasaña that's where my original butcher is and he's this old guy with white hair who kind of shuffles around but he knows everything about me and my family i know everything about he and his family and so i always have to check in on how his two daughters are doing and you know they've graduated from college now it's all very exciting one of them even moved to the states i'm not gonna say that was my influence but i'm not not gonna say um Anyways, for me, that's kind of the litmus test, you know? Do you have your, your market and your people and your sort of community around you? And for me, that, that usually is a butcher and a fruit guy and all of that.
1: So you're talking about the area around Chamberí or Cuatro Caminos?
0: A bit south of Cuatro Caminos, so just near the metro station of Quevedo. Um, so, Chamberee, see, sí, but kind of south Chamberee, right on the border between Chamberee and Malasaña.
1: Yeah, okay, I know Quebedo, Um mm-hmm. and all of that. Great, that's a nice place to be. It is. Um, and now you have a business.
0: I do. Why
1: don't you uh, describe briefly what your business does, because I don't think we've specified.
0: Yeah, so Walk & Eat is... At its most simple, it is a food tour company. We run food and wine experiences in Madrid. Um, We have a daytime market and tapas experience. We have an evening tapas and wine experience. You join a fantastic guide and they take you, kind of whisk you off onto a food and drink adventure for a couple of hours, visiting little neighborhood spots and helping people understand not just what is great food in Spain, but where to get it and how to eat it as well.
1: Great, sounds good. Um, So how do you choose the locations? on your food tours or food and wine tours?
0: <laughs> I have the very, very difficult job of eating at every single restaurant in Malasaña. Um, so we spend a lot of time just walking the neighborhood, making sure we know any new places that open. But you know, typically the types of places that we include on our experiences are, they're all locally owned and operated. That's very important to us. All of our tours support the local community. That's extremely important um, in how we choose uh, a location. It's got to have spectacular food as just a baseline. The food has got to be fantastic. And then it has to tell a story. You know, we visit, for example, one of the um, oldest um, charcutería shops in Malasaña. And Jose who runs it is second generation. He inherited it from his dad. His son is now working there with him as well. Um, And for us, you know, the people are what make the experiences so special. You know, I think everybody, when they travel, they're looking for connections. You know, you want to people where you are and you want to hear about their lives and, and and what they do and I think that really brings the foods and the flavors to life when you know who's behind them
1: yeah okay so going off the prepared list a little bit a lot of people when they travel they I think they might be able to sort of blend in and have a local experience. Um, Is that what you're trying to achieve? What do you think about that uh, idea of travel?
0: That is how I believe travel should be. Um, You know, I think where we're at right now, particularly in Spain, as such a a big destination um, for people visiting from other countries. if we could all travel with that mindset of how do I blend into the local culture, how do I do what people who are from here are doing in the way that they're doing it so that I as a visitor, I'm not changing the environment that I'm in, but rather I'm fitting into it. And that's what we aim to do with our experiences is show people, you know, when you walk up to a tapas bar, and it looks absolutely packed like a wall of humans, how do I even approach this, you know, what are the tips that you need to kind of push through the crowd, know how to get your food, know how to order, know when to eat what things, so that you can kind of blend into the vibe of the tapas bar.
1: Yeah, okay, I think you are using blend in in a different way than I do. I have some objections to the expression blend in, because like six foot tall ginger guys don't blend in anywhere, except maybe Denmark. I've never been (laughs) to Denmark, so yeah, when I think blend in, like, Okay, I was just in India. I got married to an Indian woman and I had uh, about the most local experience that you can imagine in South India, but like blending in is never gonna be an option. It's also not an option here in Spain really, in the you know sense that I understand blend in. You mean sort of integrate yourself in a non-disruptive way into the scene.
0: Yeah, like for example,
1: But you're still going to look obviously touristic, probably.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But walking into a bar and saying, hola, que tal? Instead of saying, hi, can I have a seat? You know, that's going to change the way that the bar owner responds to you. Or, you know, going in at 8.30 p.m. when their kitchen's open. And so you can get all of the great food that they serve rather than going in at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. when the kitchen's closed. Your experience is going to be so much better, Um, you know knowing that it's not rude in Spain for someone not to bring you the bill, that the waiter's never going to bring the bill to your table. You always have to ask for it. Um, you know, and that's kind of good service in Spain is not bringing you the bill and showing you, Oh, it's time for you to go because it's never time for you to go. Please stay, hang out, enjoy.
1: Yeah. I've had very few experiences of anybody trying to get me out of a restaurant here. <laughs> um, so about the Malasanya, question a lot of people like to talk about gentrification and I mean I have my opinions about people talking about gentrification but what is your opinion about people talking about gentrification
0: you know I think in any big city um, you're gonna have that issue for sure Um, you know I think in Madrid particularly, and I know it's also true in Barcelona, we have a real issue with the affordability of housing in the city. Um, And so things like, you know, Airbnbs or tourist apartments or things like that do drive rents up um, probably more than anything else in the city center, um, which kind of promotes the gentrification of the neighborhood. Um, You know, Malasaña and its neighboring neighborhood of Chueca are a really interesting sort of case study in how a neighborhood changes. In fact, just uh, two days ago, I was in uh, one of the bars that we're gonna start working with and the owner of the bar was saying that her grandmother had lived in the building in front of the bar for a hundred years, she was a hundred years old. And she had seen the neighborhood transform from, you know, at that time period in kind of the 1920s 1930s 1940s in spain malasana and Chueca were not nice neighborhoods um you know fast forward until you know the 70s and they were where a lot of sort of junkies would hang out you know there weren't particularly safe neighborhoods um And to see a neighborhood go from a place you wouldn't want to walk around by yourself at night to kind of the beating heart of Madrid and all things kind of trendy and new, but taking place in buildings that are 150, 120 years old, it's this kind of crazy push and pull between the past and the future, all sort of wrapped up in one neighborhood. So I know your question was about about gentrification, and I think, it's more evolution when we're talking about the neighborhood of Malasaña um, less gentrification and more just a kind of changing neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think gentrification is one way of calling it. But you could also just say that any neighborhood at any time is getting better or getting worse. And, you know, most people if they have the option, they would rather not live in a neighborhood that is getting worse. So what are you gonna do? There's, uh, I, I don't think there's an option of the neighborhood staying the same forever. So, you know, pick your, mm-hmm. pick your poison type
0: thing. Now, that being said, I think it is very important to preserve traditional businesses. So for example, in Malasaña, there is a a place that makes um, espadrilles that has been there for over a hundred years.
1: Is espadrille the official English word?
0: It is, the kind of woven shoes that have the kind of straw um, sole with the cloth top.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, if you're watching the video of this, I might be able to put a picture of one on the screen or something, no promises, (laughs) but I'll try. Um, Yeah, this is a typical, I mean, I think it's probably just a sort of, peasant footwear from the 19th century sort of thing, right? It's a...
0: It used to be that you would work in the fields with it um, because of the straw.
1: Yeah, it's a piece of rope that's kind of woven into a sole and they've got a little bit of mm-hmm. canvas over it.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, Nowadays, they're very trendy shoes and have been since mm, kind of the 1960s or so, I believe. Um, And so preserving traditional businesses that are still hand making these shoes in the same way they have been for 100 years is super important. You know, if that shop were to close and we would get another sort of creatively shaped waffle sort of stall, which appears to be very, (laughs) very popular in Madrid right now, that would be a real shame.
1: Are they creatively shaped in the way that I'm thinking?
0: In probably every way that you're thinking, yes.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, I don't have a problem with not safe for work language here. <laughs> I believe Amy here is referring to the penis shaped waffles that are being sold in. They have a couple of places here in Barcelona. It looks like a large penis. It's a waffle. You can. Put it in your mouth for an Instagram photo, and people do this. You would think that this would be something that uh, had very limited appeal, but apparently not. So, you
0: know, we also have there our fish ones as well, which are my preference. Um, fish and waffle, they, okay. A fish waffle, and they fill it with um, with ice cream. Um, there's there's various types of waffle shapes and sizes in Manasanya these days.
1: <laughs> Got it. I remember. Oh man. Um, I remember feeling like Malasanya had reached its limit of weirdness several years ago when I saw a place that was like gourmet kettle corn or something.
0: Ooh. You know, I think that's what's interesting about Malasanya is every like year and a half or so, the trend changes. So right now it's waffles.
1: Yeah, that was probably there for about six months on that. Exactly. Oh.
0: Vegan donuts are really making a play at the moment. Um, but, yeah, like I said, we got to focus on the traditional businesses because, you know, we, we're never going to get another handmade shoe store. Um, but there is plenty of these sort of changing trends that are always kind of coming and going.
1: I remember a place, I don't know if it's still there or if you know it, but in La Latina, there was a place that made the Botas de Vino, you know, the wine skins. Mm.
0: Yes, absolutely. That is still there. It's, I think it's um, called like the Groteria
1: Julio or something. Or
0: <laughs> it's uh, Ipa, oh, gosh, I don't remember. I can tell you exactly where it is, though. It's right on the main drag of the rastro, the Ribera de Cutidores I'm talking Street. about a
1: different place then. This place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this place actually had a couple of old guys with a stack of goat skins. And they were there like shaving the goat skins. And they apply like a, a pine tar.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To it, and they stitch it up into a wine skin, and it's this thing. Like nobody uses these anymore. I had one because I liked the the store, and I, you know, wanted to give them some money. But it's not a, it's not a thing that's easy to preserve unless you know we convince all the hipsters that they need to carry around a wine skin for mm-hmm. the next decade or something. So.
0: I mean, they are kind of genius, though. I mean, you don't need a wine glass. Super easy to share. It's not going to break. It's very portable. I mean, they really knew what they were doing back in the day.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it is a good little bit of technology, but not, uh, well, not particularly keeping with the times, either. Is it still illegal to, like, drink on the streets?
0: It is, yes. Technically, it is, yes, illegal.
1: So you might not even be allowed to use one of these in Madrid. This is the problem.
0: (laughs) I mean, maybe you just have to share with everyone and then everybody would be happy. They'd have a bit of wine.
1: Maybe. (laughs) Well, So what is it that made you want to start a business in a country that is uh, famously not easy to do business in?
0: You know, I don't think when Margaret and I decided to create, walk and eat, the S.A.L.A. or the L.L.C. Um, Margaret is my business partner. Um, I don't think we ever looked at it as how hard is this gonna be on a sort of logistics and paperwork front. We looked at it as a, we really wanna do this. Like, we love doing this and we have to, you know, go through the paperwork to be able to do it. Um, but you're right, it was it was not easy. In fact, it was, very telling. I had a friend of mine in the States who was also setting up a business. She's, she imports olive oil. And uh, she told me she started her olive oil company on in rush hour traffic, and she did it on her phone. And it took Margaret and I two months and about six government offices and three lawyers to set up our company. But we did it, we did it. And it's worth it, because it is, like I said, it's the best job I could ever have.
1: All right. Um, so you do these tours of the local markets. Is there a market specifically in Malasaña, like a an old school one?
0: There is, it's called Mercado Barceló. Um, it's been renovated, so it reopened, I believe it was 2014 that it reopened, but has been in that spot since the 1950s.
1: What street is this on?
0: Um, Calle Barceló, so just behind the Tribunal Metro Stop. Calle Barcelona, Calle Barcelona.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Now I know where it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah Okay.
0: Just off of Caral. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you got to... If you're walking up from Gran Via, you get to a Tribunal, you go right. It's the big, fancy new market there. Yeah.
0: That's the one. We have escalators. It's very exciting.
1: Yeah, I've been to that a few times. And then there's the one in um, Chueca, which is called San Anton, maybe?
0: Mm-hmm, San Anton, exactly. But San Anton is much more of like an eating market. So you wouldn't necessarily go there to do your grocery shopping, but it is a great place to kind of try a bunch of different Spanish products.
1: Great. Um, so here in Barcelona, I go to the various markets. And um, besides the food tours, which occasionally pop up, I don't see a lot of younger people in these markets. Like I'm 40 now, and often I'm the youngest person shopping <laughs> in uh in the market. Um, Do you think the municipal market sort of business model has a future? Or do you think in 20 years we'll all be just um, going to Al Campo or something?
0: Gosh, I hope not. Um, I hope not, too. When I first moved to Madrid ten years ago, I told you my first market I went to was called Mercado Vallermoso. And at the time, the market was about half empty so most of the stalls were actually closed. Nowadays Mercado Hermoso is packed every evening because some of the trendiest restaurants in Madrid are now in markets so I think that's kind of reviving the traditional markets. Now I know it's changing them as well because you're getting places like Mercado San Antón, where it's much more of a market where you go to kind of eat your way through it at different stalls that represent different restaurants rather than going to do your grocery shopping. But I do think there's been a real resurgence of these traditional markets in Madrid. Many, many more people are going back to them, kind of driven by that desire to try new kind of trendy restaurants. And then once you're in there, it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is definitely the highest quality fish I can possibly get, and the guy serving it has been doing it for three generations, and so I can walk up and say, as I do with my fishmonger, I want to make dinner for two, I don't want to spend you know, too much, but we are you know, celebrating, it's Friday night, what do you recommend for me? And he will grab a fish, tell me all about it, tell me how to cook it, and then slice it up and prepare it for me exactly as I need it to do the recipe, he says. That's incredible. You know, if you love food, there is no better place to shop than in a traditional market.
1: Yeah. Um, are the. God, I hate being this guy, but I, I don't want to say the younger generations, but do you think the younger generations are actually into cooking uh, or, you know, preserving the Spanish cuisine that their grandmothers were making?
0: I can't say I am a certified expert in the entire generation of youths in Spain, <laughs> um, but I definitely can speak to and my circle. Kind of <laughs> no, no, it's not at all. It's not at all. You know, I obviously run in very foodie circles, um, cooking and making food and sharing food and going to markets is what me and all of my friends do, um, because we love food and we love wine. Um, and so I think, you know, are traditional markets as popular as they were with sort of the grandparents generation no but when you know my grandparents if they were spanish when they were growing up there literally weren't supermarkets like supermarkets didn't come into spain until the 1980s and so yes you're always going to find the older generation shopping at markets at traditional markets more because they never you know they never got used to shopping at supermarkets so I think the younger people once you see the difference in quality because i do think the traditional markets have the highest quality products um that you can buy um at the same prices as supermarkets um once you start shopping in a traditional market and you know you know your fruit guy's name and you know your butcher's name and it it becomes a social thing you become part of that neighborhood i don't think you'd ever go back to a supermarket i mean i do but only for the you know tortilla chips, um, that I used to make salsa when I'm missing Arizona.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, um, this is true. I have a Mercadona on my street here and I almost never go because there's all the other, you know, places I'd rather go for that, mm-hmm. um, you know, for fresh food. Um, speaking of Mercadona, um, I don't know if you saw this story, but a couple of months ago, Mercadona was allegedly selling like a single fried egg in a plastic, you know, tray with more plastic on top. And this was, you know, making the rounds on social media. Like, look how dumb Mercadona is. Some uh, newspaper actually found the product designer for Mercadona and this guy went on the record saying hombre in 10 years nobody's gonna be cooking eggs at home
0: i really hope that's not true
1: <laughs> i i really hope i don't reach a point where i can't imagine taking the time to fry yeah. an egg at home i hope he's wrong also but uh, probably just you know journalism at its <laughs> finest there.
0: yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know to me Cooking is a real ritual. Um, you know, me and my partner both love to cook and it's kind of the way that we de-stress. Um, and when you've got, you know, Spain is the biggest vegetable garden in Europe. A quarter of all of the fruits and vegetables produced in Europe come from Spain. And so we have such incredibly fresh produce here, such great quality products that to not cook, it's just, you're missing out, you know, to not go into these traditional markets, you're just kind of bowing out of delicious flavors.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a big thing in Madrid or if it's, um, kind of big in Catalonia because of their sort of regional political ideas here. They're really into the kilometro cero thing. Or if I go to buy eggs, the lady will ask me like, which local town do you want the eggs to be from, or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the ones that are from, it's not Kilometro Cero, literally, but the the furthest eggs are from Girona, which is, you know, 30 or 40 minutes on the train Mm -hmm. or something like that. So there's, um, and you know, there's ones that come from just outside Barcelona also. Is that a thing that you're seeing in Madrid where they'll make a big deal about how it came from just right around the corner?
0: Absolutely, definitely. It's a it's a huge movement here. Um, You know, and we see it, for example, one of the um, places that we take people to on our tours, is a tiny little cheese shop called Mofare, and um, Aymada, the owner there, is a chemical engineer by day, but makes butter, his own butter and cheese by night, because um, that's what he's really passionate about, and sources all of his milk from the mountains just outside of Madrid. And so not only is the butter that he's making super fresh and incredible. But it's very, very, very local, and I think there's a real push towards appreciating what we have, you know, just right outside of the city. Um, You know, the city of Madrid, or I believe it's the Comunidad, has put out a sort of label that you can put on things, the M label, to show that it comes from the Comunidad de Madrid, Um, which is cool because then, you know, no matter where you're picking a product up, you can always look for that little kind of stamp to show that it's local.
1: Um, You've got the wine map behind you. Is there a Denominacion for Madrid?
0: There is, yeah. Denominacion de origen Madrid.
1: Like, I know I've had wine from Madrid, but I don't know if it's an official Denominacion or...
0: It is, it is. So Madrid has kind of two different styles, if we're really generalizing here, when it comes to wine. kind of in southern Madrid, it's very similar to the types of wines that you would get from Toledo or from Castilla la Mancha, because it is just right over the border. And these are going to be your kind of big, punchy, intense red wines. Um, And then if you go to the west of Madrid, um, west, yes, of Madrid, you'll be in the Sierra de Gredos, um, the Gredos Mountains. And to me, that's where the most interesting wines in Madrid are coming from. Some of the kind of trendiest, Minimal intervention, natural, biodynamic winemakers are in Gredos. Um, And Uh, that's a long
1: list of adjectives. Could you repeat that? (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. Minimal intervention, biodynamic and natural winemakers. What does biodynamic mean? It's basically people who are making wine using grapes and nothing else. You know, I think one of the biggest myths when you're talking about wine is that all wine is just grape juice, and that is absolutely not true. The vast majority of wines that are out there are grape juice plus... You know strawberry flavor and a bit of you know dark purple color and extra tannins and added acids and there's over a hundred different things that you can add to wine without putting it on the label so the the winemakers in kind of that area in gredos just outside of madrid and in lots of parts of spain um are saying kind of i'm not adding anything this is you know just the grapes that come from my vines and i've taken very good care of those vines and they make beautiful wines without having to tinker with them at all
1: um all right have you been to el molar
0: you <laughs> have you have the, <laughs> you have the uh, i'm overwhelmed with all of those wine words you just said look on your face i'm sorry <laughs> you touched on my favorite topic <laughs>
1: i'm trying to think like i'm not sure i've had any wine that somebody told me was minimal intervention or Mm. biodynamic, but have you been to El Molar, Las Cuevas de El Molar? Yes. Have you had the wine that they make there in Las Cuevas de El Molar?
0: No, (laughs) I haven't. No, I usually, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about. My favorite
0: wine. (laughs) No, so When you're thinking about wines that are minimal intervention think of organic as like the baseline organic means that you know if you want to add something to it whatever you add has to be organic these winemakers are taking it a step farther so they're not adding any yeasts it's just the naturally occurring yeast that cause the fermentation then if they have a problem in the vineyards let's say that they have uh, bugs in their vineyards if you're a biodynamic winemaker rather than taking organic Pesticides to kill the bugs, you're going to bring in birdhouses to facilitate an environment where birds will come and eat all of the bugs in your vineyards rather than having to put any sort of chemical on them to kill the bugs.
1: I I was thinking they were just going to ferment the bugs and (laughs) feed them to you. Let's hope not. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the wines in El Molar. For those who don't know, El Molar is just about a 45 minutes or an hour sort of bus ride Mm -hmm. from Plaza Castilla. I had some friends who lived up there um, back in the day and outside town on sort of the top end of the town. There's a, a hill where there's these sort of underground, you know, bodegas. I don't even know what the word is. It's the caves. And, you know, they make wine in these caves and it's sort of bad wine that you I mean, what I imagine is is just the grapes that are pressed and the natural yeast and all of that. They call it, you know, it's vino natural, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's it's pretty simple. Maybe you could do better if you were an expert. I think they're just doing this like as a in a non expert sort of way.
0: It's village wine, you know, and it's what people have been drinking in Spain since before the Romans arrived, you know. There are, you know, fancy winemakers who have beautiful labels and sell their wine in, you know, trendy wine bars in New York. And then there are people who just make wine because that's what they drink and they make it in their backyard or their garage or their cave. And I I, I don't think you can say one wine is better than the other. It's just where you're drinking it, what's the situation and, you know, is the fifth generation guy who's been making wine in that same cave standing there being like, you want to try my wine? Because my answer is always yes, in that situation.
1: Yeah, it is cool seeing, you know, people doing, uh, just doing that kind of thing at home. Have you ever gone and picked grapes?
0: I have. Yes, it is extremely hard work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What was your um, reason for doing this?
0: Um, A friend of mine has a very small vineyard in in Gredos, in the mountains just outside of Madrid and uh, needed some help with her harvest and I volunteered to get up at sunrise and head out to the mountains and pick grapes, Um, you know, the harvest in Spain also falls in some of the hottest Time of the year, so the harvest in Gredos is usually the end of August, beginning of September. So you have to go super, super early in the morning before the grapes get too hot. Um, You, the cooler that you can pick, the cooler the temperature that you can harvest at, the better for winemaking. So you got to get up early, and none of us would have survived the heat of the day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I did. um, In the Toledo province, I did a day of grape picking because I had a flatmate who his family had like various vineyards out there and they couldn't really afford to hire people. So they paid us in grapes. <laughs> That's fun. Um, so what's the, uh, future of walk and eat Spain?
0: Yeah, we, um, are actually just launching the end of the month, a day trip out to the Sierra de Gredos, out to the Gredos Mountains, we're going to visit an artisanal cheese shop and then two different wineries, one that does old school styles of wine and then kind of a new trendy, like I was telling you about, the minimal intervention wines. Um, So kind of expanding what we're able to offer here in and around Madrid so that more people can experience just how awesome Spanish food and wine is. Uh, That's kind of where we're hoping to go.
1: Is there lunch included in this or is it just cheese and wine?
0: Of course. Who do you think we are? You absolutely have to have lunch.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just checking. Okay. Yeah, I've only been to the Gredos area a couple of times, but I did think it has some potential. Barco de Avila, I think, is where I've been.
0: Ah, very cool. Yeah.
1: There was also a what a a chestnut tree forest or something out there somewhere where i've been el tiemblo mm. is the name of the mm. town
0: beautiful yeah i'm, I'm sure cool. it's a
1: big area but uh that's my experience in it
0: and did you eat great food when you were out there
1: uh possibly it was a long time ago i remember <laughs> there was a local thing that was something like potatoes with torreznos uh, in it
0: Patatas oh my goodness it's like if mashed potatoes were an even better food because it's covered in paprika and fried pork belly. It's incredible, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. Anyway, well, thanks for being on the show. Is there any final thing you would like people to know about uh, Spain or Madrid or your business? Any famous last words?
0: That's a big question. Um, I would just say if you come to Madrid or if you come to Spain, um, go just kind of off the beaten path just a little bit. Don't make the mistake that I made and stay in the Sol Plaza Mayor sort of bubble where, you know, right in the heart of the old city, kind of venture out a little bit, go into the neighborhoods, see real Madrid, eat the food from the tiny little bars, Um, and just really, I think the soul of the city is really in its tapas bars. And so you got to get just outside that city center, wander into a place that's packed, order a tiny little beer and really soak up what it is to be in Madrid.
1: Yeah. You don't even have to go far. You could go, you know, south of Lava Pies down to Embajadores and do just fine.
0: Mm hmm Absolutely. Definitely.
1: Well, uh, thanks. Where can people find your website, for example?
0: Yes, we are walkandeatspain.com.
1: Walkandeatspain.com. Okay. Uh, Are you on like social media and stuff? Probably.
0: We are. We are. We are on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, we are not on TikTok because I'm uh, too old for that, apparently. Um, But maybe one day. I don't know. Are you on TikTok?
1: I am not on TikTok, but my um, charcutera right down the street is on TikTok. And oh. She's like slicing ham on TikTok and apparently occasionally gets a lot of traction for slicing ham. I don't Incredible. know. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. TikTok yeah. Is, this, this, she's, is this crazy
0: thing? Mm, I don't understand. But Yeah, she's yeah. older
1: than either <laughs> of us, but she makes it work. So, you know, don't yeah. uh, let the age limit you. All right. Anyway. Huh? Who knows? So you're and eat, on Instagram probably <laughs> also like at walk and eat Spain or something like that.
0: Yep. We are at walk and eat Spain on, on both. Yep. Exactly. Great.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and possibly the video, the YouTube <laughs> channel, depending on whether this recording worked or not. And, uh, fingers crossed.
0: All right, Daniel, it was so nice to talk with you. And next time you're in Madrid, I owe you a Kanya.
1: Great. Awesome. Have a great day.
0: You too. Thank